All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Kriogs Over Coffee. Dr. Rouse is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology and a professor of epidemiology at both the Warren Alpert Medical School at Brown University as well as the School of Public Health at Brown University. Welcome, Dr. Rouse. Thank you. I'm, I'm fairly certain I'm happy to be here. <laughs> All of this is staying in, Dr. Rouse, you know that. <laughs> so Dr. Rouse, thank you for being with us today and taking time out of your busy schedule. We had a few questions for you. So first of all, what got you interested in OB-GYN and ultimately maternal fetal medicine? I think obstetrics and gynecology was the second rotation I did in medical school. The first one being psychiatry. So I was probably gonna like whatever I did next, but I really liked um, obstetrics and gynecology, particularly obstetrics. Um, I went to med school at the University of Illinois in Chicago and busy obstetric service with a lot of uh, complicated patients and that appealed to me. And the fact that no matter how bad it is, pregnancy lasts only nine months. <laughs> that is true. Unless you pull the ripcord sooner. <laughs> Dr. Ross, you've certainly been all over the field of maternal fetal medicine. You know, you're well-published, you're well-known, and kind of one of the questions that we've asked a lot of our other, during a lot of our other interviews, that is, was about kind of reflecting back, what do you feel like is your most important contribution or biggest work in the field of MFM? That's a good question, not one that I sit around and think about a lot. <laughs> um, I guess some of the work I've done with colleagues has been influential in labor management and uh, potentially keeping the cesarean delivery rate down. And then a big trial I was involved with and led was the BEAM trial, giving um, magnesium sulfate for neuroprotection. I feel like that's important because along with the two other main studies, it changed practice in that it's pretty standard in the United States now to give magnesium for women threatening to deliver before 32 weeks. I did a decision analysis when I was at uh, the University of Alabama at Birmingham with some of my colleagues, and out of that decision analysis emerged what we currently do, which is to culture from 35 to 37 weeks and give antibiotics in labor to anyone who's positive. No one had ever evaluated that strategy before. In fact, um, at the time we published it, no one had ever cultured women at 36 weeks. All the cultures had been done at 28 weeks, and there were a variety of approaches at that time. Um, but because women switch from negative to positive and positive to negative, the closer you do the culture to the time of delivery, the more accurately it'll reflect intrapartum uh, GBS carriage. And so that was one of the policies that we evaluated in a theoretical model. And subsequently, it was endorsed by the CDC and is the policy that we, you know, that's in use in the United States now. The reason I bring it up is once the CDC and ACOG adopted that as policy, our paper never gets quoted anymore. So, <laughs> you know, a, a paper can be too successful in the sense that once it gets incorporated into guidelines, people just quote the guidelines and they, um, so I feel like uh, I should get that out there on this podcast. Because again, every, that's the, you know, a practice that uh, is relevant to every woman really delivering in this country. Yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, Dr. Rouse, I did take a look at your CV yesterday and it's like 10 pages long. And you obviously have talked about already some of your research. How did you become involved in the research that you were involved in um, initially, you know, at, when you were a resident fellow and now um, uh, as an attending? What do you feel like made it so that you were able to be, be so involved in all of these research projects? Uh, probably the most important thing is to be at places that are supportive of research and have a track record of doing research. Um, I had some very good mentors at the University of Iowa where I did residency, and I chose fellowship because I was impressed with all the research that was being done at um, the University of Alabama at Birmingham. So I think absolutely critical for clinical research is uh, an environment that supports that has the resources for it, values it, um, and ultimately expects it of its faculty. I'm kind of thinking more about like research and I guess future directions now that we've talked about things that you've done in the past. You know, are there one or two things that you feel like are particular hot button issues that you really would like to see addressed in the research in the future, or you feel like are really exciting points of research that are ongoing now? Research I've done has been fairly pedestrian. You know, it's not uh, rocket science. It's sort of applied common sense or testing of, of things that anyone really could think about. I think obviously what we need to do is advance, what we need to do to advance the field of obstetrics is better understand the diseases that cause most of the morbidity in the field. We need to understand what causes preeclampsia and how to prevent it. You know, we can prevent a little bit of it with aspirin, but um, most of it we won't prevent. So until we have a fundamental understanding of underlying pathophysiology of preeclampsia and better approaches to interrupt that pathophysiology, I don't think we'll make much progress. The same for preterm birth. I mean, we have some pretty crude interventions that have some effectiveness, but because we really don't understand what makes women go into preterm labor, we haven't been very successful in, in uh, reducing its frequency. And I think in any area of medicine, you know, genetics are just going to play an increasingly important role. The more we understand the genetic basis of disease, the, the better we should become at um, preventing it or at least ameliorating its um, consequences. What advice do you have for people coming up in training, Dr. Rouse, for med medical students, for residents like Nick and I, and for fellows? Read primary literature rather than up-to-date. And if you're interested, that's, I think that's particularly important if you're interested in clinical research. Um, you know, I've heard George Soddy say that he wants his trainees to read five hours a day or something. I don't think that. I think we caught that on the podcast, yeah, too. I'm yeah. pretty sure it was closer to two hours a day. <laughs> Five, sure. Um, and two hours is doable if, you, you know, if your generation would get off its um, cell phones. You could probably spend two more hours a day reading um, primary research. No, but, you know, understand what people are doing and publishing because that that is the way to really sort of understand what needs to be done or how how things can evolve. In my experience, clinical research, what motivates me is sort of a dissatisfaction with how things are done. 
need to make that dissatisfaction constructive. And I think the way to do that is doing research. Like it's, if you think about in your daily practice, how many times you're like, well, we really don't know what the best uh, thing to do is. I think we need to find out what the best thing to do is um, to the extent that we can. So uh, the other advice I'd give you is to challenge your attendings more rather than just sort of take what they say at face value. I think a good attending likes that, likes to be called on. Nick tried to call me on something the other day by quoting a Cochrane, but I don't think he'd actually drilled down into the um, papers that uh, went into the uh, <laughs> uh, Cochrane. I just have to say there is a um, Rousean rebuttal is what I've called <laughs> it that's saved on my desktop right now. They'll be headed your way in the next two weeks. Um, but really sort of uh, question the status quo or it's going to remain the status quo, I guess. I'm not really set up for this kind of uh, interaction. I don't have any uh, profound truths to impart to you, I don't think. Yeah, this is a friendly podcast. No <laughs> fighting on the podcast, please. <laughs> Actually, I guess speaking on that, Dr. Rouse, what is one thing that is a common practice that annoys the heck out of you? that you wish that we all would stop or think about a little bit more? Um, that's a good question. I There's a lot of reflex lab ordering, and I think we've gotten away from the dictum that if you order a lab, you should do that only if the results would somehow change your management. Uh, I think we forget that sometimes. Interestingly, I think... I think I heard this at our editorial green, uh, our editorial board meeting for the Green Journal, that we're going to have a type of article uh, for that very topic, like basically things that are done that shouldn't be done based on the um, evidence. And uh, last week I was telling our fellows they should think about that and write those things. Having said that, nothing immediately. Uh, comes to mind. I, I guess what the, the use, we're sort of profligate in our use of ultrasonography um, and getting third trimester growth ultrasounds and letting whatever the estimated weight is get inside our head and change management in ways that it shouldn't. Even, um, you know, at this large premier women's hospital, practitioners will order ultrasounds and perform elective cesarean deliveries for presumed macrosomia at birth at estimated weights well below what ACOG recommends as the threshold at which we ought to consider elective cesarean delivery. So, you know, I think that's a, a practice that's not sanctioned but gets gets done. How about you, Nick? What practices have you seen that um, you would like to see rooted out? It's a good question. I think I know one that we've talked about before a lot here has been the use of oxygen on moms for decelerations and that like the the thought that oxygen could traverse the you know, alveoli to the maternal bloodstream and then somehow have an effect that's so significant on the fetus to correct acidemia seems to be far-fetched. And I know that you and Dr. Hamill had written about that before. The one that I'm challenging you on is the use of mesoprostol for postpartum hemorrhage in certain circumstances, but we can continue to talk about that off the air, I think. Um, but I do think that there is some use for it, but that may be something that you consider an annoyance or 
<laughs> not useful. <laughs> uh, not in the developed world. It's, <laughs> I don't think it's useful. Um, and you'll know that, and I should know her name because I was in a course with her, but a fellow at WashU actually performed a randomized trial of oxygen given to women who had a, a type 2, I mean a category 2 fetal heart rate tracing. And I think their primary outcome was uh, umbilical cord lactate um, concentration, and it was not different between women who did and didn't get um, oxygen. So, you know, uh, not a definitive trial, but at least ran a randomized trial addressing the very um, issue that you brought up. What are your thoughts about the ARRIVE trial and the fact that we're starting to implement it at women and infants and probably in other hospitals around, around the country? It was sweet of you to send me, um, offer <laughs> for me to listen to what Dr. Groveman uh, <laughs> thought about it. Um, I, I think it's a hugely important trial and it's um, pregnancy and birth is not, not all about hard outcomes or at least the outcomes we focus on. But I think it does answer the question um, for a woman who's interested in lowering her cesarean delivery rate and or limiting uh, the potential for adverse outcomes in her baby. If induction is performed according to the protocol which was in place in the ARRIVE trial, which is you know, don't bail out of the induction until you've received, you know, you've administered oxytocin for at least, I think, 15 hours with um, ruptured membranes and adhere to current active phase labor management guidelines. The result will be a lower cesarean delivery rate and as close as you can get statistically to better neonatal outcomes without actually getting there. You know, I'm, Dr. Grobman may have covered this, but the, the, the relative risk for the fairly serious adverse um, composite neonatal outcome in that trial was 0.8 with um, induction, meaning a 20% reduction in that outcome with induction. Unfortunately, the confidence interval didn't overlap one, but it included one, so it went from something like 0.6 to 1.0. And had we not taken looks at the data along the way, um, and spent p-value, the, the p-value for that finding, I think, was actually 0 0.049 or, or 0.048. So absolutely excellent evidence that we won't harm babies by inducing labor at 39 weeks and fairly good data that we may actually improve their outcomes. Now, clearly, um, there will be a lot of women who don't want that kind of intervention, and we should respect that. But I think the ARRIVE trial provides the best data to answer the question is, will induction increase, not change, or lower my chances of cesarean delivery if I undergo it at 39 weeks as opposed to just waiting to see what happens? And I think the answer is it'll lower the risk of cesarean delivery um, and maybe prevent some adverse neonatal outcomes. It lowered the rate of respiratory problems in babies. And I, I think I'm Importantly, it lowered the risk of hypertensive diseases in women since we know the, a lot of hypertension ha happens at and beyond 39 weeks. If a woman's not pregnant during that period of risk, she's less likely to have a hypertensive complication. Dr. Rouse, I guess outside of the hospital and your research activities, what keeps you grounded? 
That presumes that I'm grounded. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I don't know. I like to read. I, I don't really have any hobbies. I work out. I try to work out every day. Other than fighting with Nick. Uh, yeah. I um, I have two grown children, so I hang out with my uh, wife a lot, Dr. Catherine Wenstrom, who's also an MFM. But I suppose I should develop some hobbies so that if one day I do retire, I have something to do. But no, I like to read, uh, you know, c- contemporary fiction. I watch a lot of movies. I exercise. I, I try uh, not to get in a car any more than I have to. So I developed Rhode Island disease. If, if something's more than a couple miles away, it seems like it's a long way away and not worth doing. What are you currently reading? What am I? I just, I don't usually read nonfiction, but I my sister for Christmas got me a book called Bad Blood, which was about uh, Elizabeth Holmes and the Theranos Company. I don't know if you followed that at all. Basically, Elizabeth Holmes is a Stanford dropout who secured a lot of funding to fund a technology company that could run, whose purpose was to run hundreds of blood tests on just a drop of blood. And she in spite of not having the technology to do this, she convinced a series of prominent investors to invest in this company and got you know multiple luminaries to serve on her board. And apparently it was quite mesmerizing in her ability to pitch this idea. The company got to be worth nine, was valued at $9 billion. She was said to be the first self-made woman billionaire, but it was all built on a lie and ultimately exposed as such by a Wall Street Journal reporter. And now she is under, I don't know what her exact legal status is, but the company's basically bankrupt and she's under federal indictment. And uh, sort of an interesting Silicon Valley startup, criminal enterprise, what ultimately turned out to be a criminal enterprise um, story. So I read that. I just started reading a book by um, Julian Barnes, um, which I can never remember the name of the books I read, but he wrote A Sense of an Ending or something like that. That's not the right title, which won the Man Booker Prize, and so now I'm reading this book. But uh, My favorite author is uh, Michael Chauvin. He wrote The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. I don't know if you all have read that. What do you all read? I subscribed to Book of the Month. Um, so most recently I'm reading a book called Golden State, which is a dystopian novel about um, how lying is now like a federal offense and um, people who are able to detect lies and things like that. That's what I'm reading. Interesting. Yeah, I um, I tend to keep more in nonfiction myself, so I'm actually trying to work my way through Anthony Bourdain's book right now. Forget the title at this point. He wrote it a number of years ago, but about his adventures as a New York sous chef and working his way up before he got into the big time CNN gig. Confidential something. Yeah, Kitchen, Kitchen Confidential. Confidential. That's it. Yeah. That's it. So very good. Well, thank you again for your time, Dr. Rouse. This has been a pleasure. My pleasure. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Kriogs Over Coffee. guys, if you liked what we had to say on the show today, give us a five-star rating on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is. 
You can also find us on social media at Twitter on Kriogs Over Coffee one on facebook at kriogs over coffee on our website at www.kriogsovercoffee.com on patreon at www.patreon.com slash coffee and on our newest social media platform instagram at kriogs over coffee and finally if there's anything that you feel like that we missed on this show any corrections that you have or an idea for a future show give us a shout out kriogs over coffee at gmail.com mm-hmm.